What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is a great way to stay abreast of the most important news and opinion about China, covering politics, business, culture, society, and more. Subscribe to the free email newsletter, download the app, or check out the website. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you this week from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is Jeremy Goldcorn, who has just returned from his native South Africa to an America that he may no longer actually recognize. How are you, Jeremy? I'm pretty discombobulated, I have to say. I heard about uh, the Trump victory in the middle of a 20-hour flight uh, via Ghana to South Africa with no internet. Oh, Spent uh, three days in Johannesburg and then another 20-something hour flight back. Uh, so I arrived yesterday and I'm still not quite sure what's real and what I dreamed on the plane. <laughs> uh, well, it's all, it's all a nightmare. Chuckling there in the background, of course, is David Moser, who joins us from Beijing. He is academic director of the CET program there, holding high the Seneca banner in the great city Jeremy and I both called home for over 20 years. David, how are you coping with the sting of electoral defeat? <laughs> ah, well, you know, it feels so far away from you Americans over there. Uh-huh, we, right, we, uh-huh. we here are just flowing with the Dow, you know, or the Dow Jones anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give a quick thank you to Brian Houston for lending us his apartment in Beijing, where you and our guest are, guest to be introduced very quickly here. But guys, in in this age of triumphant know-nothingism, as many of us fear that the once bright flame of social progress, of tolerance, humanism, reason might actually be extinguished, we can still turn our eyes to one leader, a man who has infused new life into what was until recently an ossified bureaucracy shot through with corruption and plagued by scandal, one leader who still represents the aspirations of over a billion people. You guys know who I'm talking about, right? Xi Jinping. Pope Francis. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today, actually, we're talking about both of these men and, of course, Pope Francis and Xi Jinping and the possible rapprochement between the institutions that they had, uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the Catholic Church. And as you might have read and would have if you were subscribing to the SubChina newsletter, the Vatican has signaled that it would be willing to recognize bishops that have been ordained by the officially sanctioned church in China, which the Vatican does not itself recognize. And indeed, Vatican City is like one of the few, you know, the handful of countries left in the world that actually does not recognize the PRC and indeed recognizes Taiwan. So today we've got three atheists sitting down to chat with the smartest guy writing on religion in China today, Ian Johnson of the New York Times, who is, of course, frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books and the author of a forthcoming book on religion in China. 
Ian has spent the better part of the last quarter century striking flint on steel, trying to reignite the long cold embers of the Taiping Rebellion. Welcome back to Seneca, Ian. How are you? Thanks for that introduction, Kaiser. Good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, uh, if you could bring us and the listeners up to speed on uh, the developments Kaiser mentioned, maybe it would be best to explain the history of the current relationship between the Communist Party and the Vatican, or the lack of it. What has been the arrangement up to now with the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association and the illegal underground Catholic Church and the Vatican? Well, it's probably good to just go back to 1949 when the PRC was founded. The Communist Party expelled all foreign missionaries, and that included Protestant as well as Catholic, but it hit the Catholic Church especially hard. And so the Catholic Church lost all of its bishops who were foreign, and many people who headed the church, uh, or even church institutions like schools and orphanages and hospitals, they were basically all foreign. It was a really foreign, heavy organization in China before 1949. So afterwards, the church was was decapitated, you could say. And the Patriotic Association was set up that would run the church in China, and it was run by Chinese people, and they ordained their own bishops. And that's been the situation officially since 1949, or since the 1950s when the association was set up. But there's been a thriving underground church which does not recognize the bishops and the other clergy appointed by Beijing and is still loyal to the Vatican, and that's the underground church. And so these two churches are, um, there's a bit of fluidity between the two, but they're basically at loggerheads. And this has been an unsolved problem uh, for Chinese leaders since then, and it's something they're trying to address now. So, so Ian, what is the status of these Vatican loyal Catholics, the underground church right now? Are they really heavily persecuted? Are they allowed to sort of exist in a kind of gray area? Uh, what kind of uh, policies does the, the uh, CCP have specifically toward them right now? I think gray area is a good way to put it. There was very heavy persecution, of course, in the first 30 years of communist rule, culminating with the Cultural Revolution, as we all know. But since then, the authorities, by and large, know who the people are who, are who are loyal to the Vatican. But as long as they're not overtly political or say they're not agitating against government policy, such as in the past, the single child policy, then they're mainly left alone. They have their own seminaries, they train people, they are active in the countryside especially, but the government it basically leaves them alone, but it doesn't give them any space to operate. So they can't have their own churches and they can't have official ordinations and so on. So when you say they're underground, do they typically just operate out of homes? Are they house churches the way that, that Protestant house churches are? Uh, yeah, most of the people operate out of homes or or some sort of a meeting place, um, much like the Protestants, but on a, on a bit of a smaller scale because Catholicism is not as big as Protestantism is in China. Uh, I sometimes go by the uh, Matteo Ricci Church, the Nantang in Shenwoman in Beijing. I was just happened to be there the other day after Mass, and there, there were a lot of people there. Uh, what's the status? I assume they're all uh, Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association, you know, members. What's the status of that group? How many how many people are we talking about actually, and what's their uh, you know what's their association? I mean, what kinds of uh, their hierarchy and everything. Yeah, well, the, the Patriotic Association runs all of the churches that look like churches, all the, the buildings with uh, 
steeples and spires and stained glass and all that, that was all taken over from the missionaries and the mission churches after 1949. And that's uh, the same with the Protestants, by the way. All the things that look like churches, they're all run by the um, patriotic associations. And they have their own hierarchy headquartered in Beijing, um, their own bishops and priests, etc. They make up um, five to six million Catholics in China. And then you have the underground church, which probably makes up, there the numbers are not so clear, but maybe we're talking a total, so maybe another six million, maybe a total maximum of 12 million Catholics Mm. in China. So half and half, probably. Hmm. Uh, what about Protestants versus Catholics? How how many Protestants are there compared to the number of Catholics? Um, Protestants, I'd say, outnumber Catholics about five to one. So uh, that's what I, uh, yeah, I would sense. take a lower estimate. I don't believe these high numbers of a hundred million and so, but I think you could pretty safely say about sixty million Protestants and. It's grown a lot faster. In 1949, there were 3 million Catholics and 1 million Protestants. And Protestantism has just taken off because it's not burdened with this issue of ordaining clergy. You know, anybody can sort of right. sit down, memorize a Bible, and say, I'm starting the such and such a church in my living room. And if people believe you and come along, then they can join your quote unquote church and I can become a pastor. And. After a while, we could rent space or whatever, and it can. And this is how a lot of Protestant churches are formed. But Catholicism, like many religions, has a very strong hierarchy, a very strong structure, and this is the strength of the church historically. But also, in the case of China, its weakness, because when you decapitate it, you cut off its links to the Vatican. It has a hard time growing. You have a hard time ordaining new uh, bishops and priests, um, and you can't grow as as quickly as, say, the Protestants, which are much more flexible and and sort of organic in how they grow. Right. So let's go back to the beginning. I mean, this is not by any means the first time that a government, a Chinese government seated in Beijing, has been at loggerheads with the Vatican. Uh, Let's go back to the beginning and sketch out maybe a quick outline history of relations between the Catholic Church and Chinese authorities back maybe to the arrival of Jesuit missionaries in China back in the the late 16th century, early 17th century. Uh, What was the approach of the Jesuits and and how was that approach ultimately thwarted in what was called the, the rights controversy of the 17th and 18th centuries? Yeah, there'd been many efforts to bring Christianity to China, going back to the Tang Dynasty with the Nestorians who came in as traders along the Silk Road. You had Franciscans who tried to come and they failed. The Jesuits um, established a permanent presence for Christianity. So since the late 1500s, there's been Christianity in China, and it's mainly thanks to the Jesuits, which is an order of the Catholic Church which is highly intellectual and highly devoted to an idea of localization. So when the first Jesuits came to China, and I'm thinking especially of its probably its most famous person, Matteo Ricci, they believed in trying to emulate Chinese. And so Matteo Ricci became a Confucian scholar, and he dressed up like a Confucian scholar. He memorized the Confucian classics. He learned calligraphy. And he said, look, I'm just as good as you guys are, as any Mandarin official in the government. I know all the stuff, but I've got my own belief system. And so he tried to win them over by being sort of an uber Confucianist. And he was quite successful. And he insinuated 
the Jesuits and the Catholics into the upper reaches of the government, um, into the imperial court, uh, for, you know, about 120 or 30 years. What ultimately brought this to an end then? This approach seems to have been so incredibly successful. As you say, there were very, very high-ranking Catholics all the way up into, well, into the, the Qing dynasty in the very highest echelons, I mean, who had the ear of the, the, the Kangxi and Qianlong emperors. Yeah, when the Ming fell and the Qing rose, the Jesuits stayed, and they had many technical skills that the emperors valued, especially in astronomy and predicting things like eclipses, and they could wow people by saying, well, your figure for the eclipse is off by a couple of minutes, and their figures were more accurate, and so this got them a lot of credibility. Um, but what happened was they were the victims of internal machinations in Rome. And I think the basic problem was people had this completely unrealistic idea about China, which you see not just in religion, but in business and many other things as well, which is if you could just get to the top guy and, and convert the top guy to your way of thinking, that China, the whole of China and its vast population would follow. So they thought this would be like the Roman Empire, where we come in, we can... Constantine, yeah. Yeah, we convert the emperor, and bang, the whole empire becomes Christian. And so after a hundred years of this, there were people in Rome who were saying, well, look, you're just emulating the Chinese. You're uh, not actually achieving anything. You haven't really made very many converts at all. There may be just a few dozen people in Beijing who are following the Catholic Church, and you're compromising on some really basic Christian principles, um, such as we don't worship ancestors, and yet the Chinese are worshiping ancestors, and you're saying it's okay. Um, This is the the Catholic equivalent of what the British uh, colonists used to call going native. Yeah, exactly. They went totally native. Right. um, And and Confucian ancestor worship was the rites the, the the eponymous rights of the rights controversy, right? That's right. No, um, it is right. That it's is right. The, it's the um, power of the Han. Like the Manchus were eating Peking duck and listening to Peking opera by the time the, the, the Qing fell, right? Well, yeah, they, they thought the funeral rights, the, the ancestor worship is absolutely crucial, obviously, in Chinese culture. Still today, you think of Qingming festival, tomb sweeping, um, respect for the dead, respect for your ancestors uh, is absolutely vital. And in imperial China, it was the law of the land. If you did not go and worship your ancestors or take a year off when your ancestors, when your father or mother died and go back to your hometown, it was punishable by death. And so what the right. Catholic Church uh, essentially then said was, if you follow ancestor worship, we will excommunicate you from the church. Um, so you had to choose. I'm going to be killed by the emperor or I'm going to be excommunicated from the church. And sort of to drive this insanely dogmatic point home, the Catholic Church sent an emissary, met with the emperor and said, These are, this is the way it's going to be. There can be no ancestor worship in China anymore. <laughs> and so the emperor just looked at him and said, you're obviously insane. Um, you are all expelled from China immediately, and that's the end of this crazy little religion that we allowed to hang around the periphery of China for 100 years. And that seemed to be the end of the story. In the, this, is the, this is the early 1700s we're talking about, about 1711, right. I think. So it was the Dominicans and the Franciscans that were it mainly behind this. Ganged right? up on the poor Jesuits, yeah. 
So, Ian, can you give us like a really brief history of what happened after that, bringing us through to 1949, uh, at which point you've already, um, you know, given us an idea of what was going on with Catholics in China. So the rights controversy through to 1949 in two minutes, go. Yeah, well, (laughs) after the rights controversy erupted and Catholics and Christians were expelled from China, there were still Christians in China, and people still tried to get into China, and there were still Chinese who had converted. Some people who had done business up in in Beijing had met these people, had gone back to their homes, for example, in rural Shenxi province. And as often happened, when the local person in a village converted to something or adopted a deity, the whole village converted. So you have these villages throughout rural China, especially, say, in Shenxi and Hebei province, that converted. And this is still a heartland of Catholicism. So even though it was, strictly speaking, illegal, the sky is high, the emperor is far away, and Catholicism still existed um, throughout the 1700s. And then in the early 1800s was, of course, the Opium War and gunboat uh, diplomacy. One of the key requests of the European countries, especially the French, was that missionaries be allowed back into China. And this is when I think Christianity, including Catholicism, got a bad name, that it was only in China because of imperialists, because of the Opium War, and that it was a foreign religion that didn't really belong in China and shouldn't exist. But the missionaries did come in, they did spread Christianity and Catholicism, and and this is where the hierarchy of the Catholic Church worked well, because they could channel the funds of this global organization into China, they could open up orphanages um, and, and schools and hospitals, they could offer financial incentives, and by the early, but you know, even despite all this, by the early 1900s, there was a lot of dissatisfaction, again, in in Catholic circles. People thought, uh, you know, again, nobody's really been converted. There's just a few hundred thousand Christians in China, a few hundred thousand Catholics. Maybe it's failed, and maybe we haven't done a good enough job. And there was a, a guy who wrote a paper about this in around 1910, a Catholic priest named Jolie, and this became the big sort of paradigm for how Christianity was viewed for a long time, maybe even until the end of the Cultural Revolution. If you think of works like by Paul Cohen, a great historian who did works on the missionaries, he sort of, the, the paradigm, the idea was that Christianity had sort of failed. It was this foreign religion and it hadn't really taken off. And that was, and then after 1949, outsiders didn't really know what was going on in China very much until after the Cultural Revolution. And lo and behold, after the Cultural Revolution, it turned out that Christianity had not only survived, but had sort of thrived in the crucible of the Cultural Revolution, especially Protestantism, but also Catholicism. And by the reform and opening period of the 1980s, we had a religious revival in China, and Christianity was part of that. Uh, so, so Ian, bringing up to the present time, after uh, the uh, the reform and opening up, and Catholicism starts again anew, you enter into a sort of a, a popeless era. When did the Vatican, or was it the Vatican? When did the tentacle, the, the sort of uh, attempts at rapprochement begin? Yeah, there have been on and off again efforts for decades to um, fix this problem on both sides, and I think. I've I've known people in the Catholic Church who have been trying their hardest uh, to fix this problem, but it is uh, it is very difficult because it requires some sort of fundamental compromise on on either side. But 
it's been a long, long-standing effort, and I think the the Catholic Church has been willing or trying to do a deal for a long time. China was probably also more eager, I think, in the 1980s after the end of the Cultural Revolution, and China was pretty weak, um, and they thought that this would be a way to open the doors more widely in the Reform and Opening period. Uh, this would set a sign for the outside world, and I think. There was probably an opportunity then to do some kind of a deal, but then as the 90s dragged on and nothing happened, um, it seemed to sort of go dormant for a while. Well, it seems to me uh, from, from reading about this just recently that since Pope Francis came in, there, he's, he's, he's made a concerted effort telling Xi Jinping that uh, he was a big admirer of Chinese culture. And di- didn't Xi Jinping recently send him a, a, a gift, a kind of a silk print of a stele in Xi'an? which is like the first symbol of Christianity's presence in China. Uh, given this, this sort of a mutual uh, a sort of uh, attempt at, at reconciliation, why do you think that Beijing would now be willing to entertain this kind of a rapprochement? Is just a soft power push, or they want to resolve this, or, or is it an attempt to gain greater control of this, this, uh, you know, this, this uh, unruly religion? Yeah, I think uh, just to back up, up in, in the early 2000s, there was an effort, there was actually a period of time, about five years, when they had a mechanism for appointing bishops, where they would come up with, a, one side would come up with sort of three bishops who would be acceptable and sort of show it to the other side. Um, basically, Beijing would have a list of, say, we're considering A, B, and C, and the Vatican would go, okay, those three are acceptable to us, or, well, B is not acceptable because um, he was married before, or there were cases like that. Had a girlfriend or something. Or, yeah, <laughs> or, you know, we think he's, we've heard he's corrupt or he's not very good. We can't accept that person. And then the and then Beijing would pick A and C and just leave out B. That died out, I don't know, about 10 years ago. And uh-huh. since then, there was just this unilateral effort by Beijing to appoint a bunch of bishops. And so it's a good question. Why do it now? I have to say, it surprises me. Because if you'd asked me a year ago, do I think there'll be a deal? I would have said no. Probably not, because it would require fundamental compromises on both sides. And I just didn't see the Xi administration doing that. They're riding high. They're doing, or they feel at least they're doing so well in the world. Um, Why would they want to do that? But in the springtime, they had a work conference on religion, which was a big, big meeting. And the last one they had before that was 15 years earlier. Um, in the wake of the Fowl and Gong crackdown in about 2001. And so they had this one in the spring of 2016, and they emphasized they want to minimize foreign influence on Chinese religion. And that got me thinking that maybe they see this as a way to solve this problem. You think of it like the border conflicts that China had before. They had all Mm -hmm. these unclear borders with certain countries, and one by one, they kind of fixed the problems. And maybe they feel that this is some unfinished business that they was left over basically from the Mao period, and they just want to Mm -hmm. get it done. And hopefully they can get it done more on their terms than on the Vatican terms. Uh And that's why I think it's really hard to evaluate what's going on, because the exact details have not been made public. And I think the devil is really in the details. Mm-hmm. You know, how are they going to pick the bishops, the exact mechanism? Mm-hmm. And I think that probably will be a secret and will probably leak out in the coming months. Um, and it'll just be interesting to see how it's implemented and whether it can even last. Hmm. Uh, 
in the future. Before we get into the details of the actual compromise deal on the table, um, let's talk a little bit more about about the reasons why Xi Jinping might be interested now. It might be you know more amenable to a rapprochement. We talk all the time. We hear constantly uh, about the moral vacuum, about the sort of spiritual crisis. And this is not lost on the leadership in Beijing. I mean, they're, they're, they're certainly aware of it. I mean, they're constantly talking about it. And they, they've tried to fill that void with, you know, a revived Confucianism. Uh, they've found nationalist embers in, in, in hopes of, of, of using that. They've even kind of, you know, tried to, to kind of warm over long dead communist ideology in an effort to do this, they're aware of it. They're aware of the kind of rampant materialism. You know, They're aware of, of uh, the, the deep-rooted problems in Chinese society. And surely they see religion uh, with you know, the consolation that it's always been able to give to the grieving and, and all, uh, for, with the, the moral and kind of ethical guidance that it's provided to you know, millennia of, of people. Why... Wouldn't they be interested in this, right? Is this part of the the thinking in any in any detectable sense? I do think that they well that you're definitely right that they they see that there's a moral vacuum and they know that their efforts are not going to be a hundred percent successful. That the, that the Communist Party still wants to guide the moral uh, direction of China, but they know that not everyone's going to listen to it. So in that sense, I think the party is pragmatic, and I think they've given free hand almost to Buddhism and Taoism and folk religion and and all of these things that they've now redefined as intangible cultural heritage, um, Uh which a lot of, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago used to be called feudal superstition. But now, you know, fortune telling, all that stuff that used to be illegal is now legal. So they've, they feel much more comfortable with the indigenous Chinese religions. But the foreign religions are still there and they need to deal with them in some way and they want to limit the foreign influence. So this is a way, I think, to to bring everybody in under a big tent. You have this underground church, let's somehow bring them in to the official church, much as they're trying to do, I think, with the underground Protestant groups. They're making an effort to kind of carrot and stick people into the um, three self-patriotic movement, which runs the Protestant churches. Co-opt them, basically. Yeah, cut them off or, you know, bring them in, like have some, in some places like Wenzhou, they have these face-saving efforts where you can register your church, your house church with the official church, but the official church doesn't really tell you what to do, but at least you've kind of, officially, there's some kind of line in the command structure there, and the local officials can say, oh, well, they're all under the Religious Affairs Bureau. Um, I think that's what they'd like to do with the Catholic Church. I just think it's very tricky because you have a real institution. Protestantism is is very amorphous, and it's easier to kind of maybe push into this corner or that corner. But the Catholic Church is one of the ur institutions in the world, in the world history. It's been around for such a long time. It's it, it's it's harder, I think, for them to uh, strike a deal and, and, and something that will be acceptable. Where the the Catholics in China, the underground, the people who've been loyal to the church for seventy years, that they don't feel betrayed. This is going to be a real trick, and I think this is why it's sort of dragged on. This is there's been talk about this for about a month or two, and yet nothing official has come out. And I think it's just really hard for the church to do something that will not tick off. Um, hardliners, if you want, or loyalists, or however you want to put it. 
So, Ian, I mean, we've talked now a little bit about the motivations on the Chinese side for a rapprochement. What kind of support is there on the Vatican side amongst the, the senior, if we can call them officials of the Catholic Church? And, you know, what, what, what is their motivation at the moment for doing this? Well, I think Franciscus is, um, Pope Francis has been, uh, he, he is a unifier and he wants to deal with some of these problems that have also been around for a long time. He's somebody who seeks reconciliation. And I think for him, but for many people in the church for a long time, this would be a real coup if they could pull this off. After all, China is the, still the world's most populous country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And while Catholicism is not going to convert the Chinese, the heathen Chinese, to like in the Roman Empire, but I think they still see that this is an area where the church could grow in the future. Um, you know, slowly, not immediately, but this would be... And I, I think they realize that the lack of links to the Vatican, the lack of structure has really held the church back. And they've got to look at the Protestants and say, wow, look at those guys from 1 million in 1949 to 60 million now, whereas we've only basically kept pace with the population growth. Uh, a little bit more, but, you know, roughly around that level. So you, you look at you look at that, and I think a lot of people in, in the Catholic Church are really want a solution because they think a solution would help the church. And that's where other—but other people in the church would say— no, you're going to undercut the very thing that makes us Catholics if you cut a deal like this. And what about well, among the house churches? What's the support like for, for that, the underground churches? I mean, presumably they're opposed. Um, I've talked to people—I I talked to somebody who I'd, I'd met before in Shanxi province, and he was very cautious, and he mm -hmm. said they'd love it if they could be officially recognized by the Vatican, if they wouldn't have to— be underground, but they don't want to do it if it means uh, being under some of these bishops who they think of as illegitimate. They think many of these bishops were consecrated in ceremonies that are not legitimate. And uh, some of these ceremonies were highly contentious. I mean, it seems like you just consecrate somebody, what's the big deal, you know? But you, when you do it, you have to bring other bishops. And sometimes they had to bring in, leg, you know, quote-unquote legitimate recognized bishops to these ceremonies un under pressure and almost trick them to come to these. And so there's going to be a meeting, and then when the bishop shows up at the meeting, it turns out to be a consecration of a bishop who's not approved. And these bishops then feel tainted. I've now participated in this ceremony. I've been pushed to do this. And there's been a lot of—these ceremonies have been a source of a lot of contention, and a lot of people just don't trust these bishops who have been consecrated. So what do you do with them? Does the Pope recognize them all and say, okay, you guys are good to go, you're fine now? Um, that for a lot of people, that will be a real problem to accept that. Yeah, yeah. So, Ian, if these ecclesiastical issues, these these theological issues aren't thorny enough for you, we've even got sort of the, the, the cross-straits relationship thrown into the mix now, Taiwan and the mainland. Um, the Vatican has, has, like I said, been the only Western state, I think, if that's correct, uh, that does not have diplomatic ties with Beijing and instead has formal relations with, with Taipei. Uh, the normalization of the, the CCPA's ties to the Vatican would, would, would be a major diplomatic coup for Beijing, yeah? Um, how does this play into the political considerations for the party? Well, yeah, I think from the Vatican's point of view, I think if they could cut a deal they like, they'd drop Taipei in a 
they drop Taiwan in, in, a, in a Taipei heartbeat or whatever. Um, it wouldn't be any problem for them to, to do that if they got the deal that they wanted. Um, and yeah, you know, for, for Beijing, that's another coup. I mean, the Vatican isn't exactly a superpower anymore, but it wouldn't be bad to have that either. And just to further show Taiwan that basically nobody recognizes you. Although I think the Taiwanese by and large know that. I mean, I don't think... The days are sort of gone in the 70s when they were trying to hold on to these countries desperately as a sign of legitimacy. I think probably of all the issues, that's the least contentious. I think if they can cut a deal, the Vatican would drop Taiwan. Can we go back? There, there's one issue I still really don't quite understand, which is the relationship now it, under this new normalization, if it occurs with the underground church versus the the, uh, the patriotic association. Uh, if If this rapprochement occurs... Uh, and you can see by the reaction of, of the underground church that they actually are very, you know, they detest this regime and they're very afraid of this happening and they don't want it to happen. What isn't the risk of the underground church just go away because the, the patriotic association is staying, right? The underground church, who is who they consider themselves to be having the legitimate uh, relationship with the hierarchy in Rome, um, that, that in fact this would now be replaced by this officially sanctioned above-ground Catholic Patriotic Association hierarchy that deals directly with the Pope, isn't that an existential threat to the underground church? They're, they're going to disappear. Yeah, I think they would feel betrayed um, if this is what happened. And I think there is, though, a lot of sensitivity uh, there. But, you know, you have many people in the church, for example, Cardinal Zen in Hong Kong, who have come out very explicitly saying, you can't trust the communists. You may think you can cut a deal with them, but they're going to do what they want to do. And if you if you do this, you're going to be, be betraying these the most loyal uh, Catholics, you know, in China ever. So um, it will be a huge mistake if you do this. And I don't know. I mean, there's other. Obviously, there are other voices in the Catholic Church in in uh, in, in Hong Kong. There's also there are others who who, th- who have different views. Yeah, Ian, you mentioned uh, Cardinal Joseph Zen. I've he's he's as you say been quite critical. Once one quote that's been going through the news uh, the last few days is is the quote that the Pope doesn't understand China, and as you sort of said that as well. If do you do you think the Pope is he's not so? Do you think the Pope is really as naive as Cardinal Zen says? Um, or do you think that he he really has a grasp of the situation can create some a situation where the church can thrive un, under the the communist party government I think he thinks he takes a really long view and he's probably looks back over you know almost 2000 years of church history and says um look the church has survived in harsher climes than China, than the People's Republic of China today. And um, yeah, it'll be difficult, but it would be better that we're in there doing our pastoral duty. Um, and this is something that the Pope emphasizes a lot, um, helping the people there, helping them through this difficult time, than if we're on the outside, simply lecturing or holding high some abstract banner because for 70 years we've done this and it hasn't really worked and we've left a lot of people alone and so i think he probably feels very strongly in favor of the underground church but he probably sees it as his duty to try to help them to try to help the people who are um who have been left behind so to speak by the by the events of the past 70 years I you know I don't think the pope is naive. I think he's though clearly signaled. He gave an interview earlier this year um just on China 
and he didn't touch on any controversial points. He didn't mention house churches. It didn't come up once in the interview, which is sort of amazing because that's one of the big things about the church in China, but somehow they didn't come up. And so he's clearly signaling that he will be very diplomatic and he could be a trusted partner. In a way, sort of like the Dalai Lama has tried to do at times, where the Dalai Lama says, oh, independence is out of the question and so on and so forth. But I don't think the authorities... How's that working for him? <laughs> exactly. I, don't, I don't think the authorities in Beijing trust him. I think there's a trust problem with the Dalai Lama. They don't trust him. But I think they maybe feel, well, the church has been around a long time, and when this pope dies, there'll be another pope. It's not like the Dalai Lama, where they right. feel they can probably wait him out. So they But yeah, actually, think- <clears throat> on that point, um, uh, I mean, is that in fact the case? Because uh, this pope is extremely well-loved. You know, he has uh, pursued a... Uh, an agenda that is very supportive of the church in uh, outside of Europe. How important is he himself to this process? You know, how important is it that he's he's well loved and that perhaps giving him more of a mandate to make a deal? Well, yeah, no, for sure he is much more loved. He's much more popular than Benedict, who was a, a very aloof uh, figure. But there have been other popular popes in the past. Is predecessor's predecessor um, was was extremely popular and so there could be another charismatic pope in the future as well but yeah I think it's important I think a, a pope to make a deal like this would have to bring in many different um, factions in the church to make this work and by force of personality and argument he'd have to do it and maybe being him you know don't forget the pope himself is a Jesuit and maybe he also feels a bit of affinity toward China that his uh, predecessors in the Order of Jesus brought Catholicism, brought Christianity to China on a permanent basis, and he wants to normalize things. I mean, I don't know. I don't think he's an egotist that thinks exactly like that, but there could be some sense of mission there where if anyone can do it, it would be a, a Jesuit. And, you know, Jesuits are known also for not being in your face in when they're in host countries. They tend to work within the rules, within the system. They run educational institutions. They are not proselytizing. They're not really known for proselytizing in that way. They proselytize by doing good works and setting a good example and that kind of thing. But they're, these are not the sort of shock troops. Well, they were considered shock troops, but they're not the shock troops in the sense of going out there, knocking door to door and baptizing people in their bathtubs. So <laughs> I, th- I think that they, that may also be a factor where he can say, look, you know, people like me, you can trust, we'll work within the system. And that may count a lot to Beijing. This pope is also known for pushing an agenda that, I mean, I, we could describe as a human rights agenda. He, he's been very upfront about it. But this push comes at a sort of an awkward time. Uh, Xi Jinping's administration perhaps is not known for <laughs> its emphasis on human rights. Uh, it's also, you know, pursued a, a, a pretty lengthy and pretty thorough crackdown on a lot of underground Protestant churches, uh, perhaps not so much against the Catholic Church, but some, I think many people feel that the Pope, rather than pursuing this dialogue with Beijing, engagement, maybe should be increasing human rights pressure against them. So what's your take on this? And uh, what do you think is... is uh, the downside of of this in terms of the ability of the Pope to to speak on on human rights issues? I think that a lot of people around the world in many countries and in many institutions feel that China right now is unassailable, that it's the it's it is truly a superpower. Um, it's an economic juggernaut, um, and that there's really nothing you can do that to oppose 
the course that is being followed right now in Beijing. And I think there could be a sense of that in the church. Like, we need to just cut a deal with these guys, finally. Um, it's not going to get any better. Uh, Xi Jinping is probably not an aberration. And if that's what they think, I think they're probably also right. I mean, I think in the sense that China is what it is. And if you're going to cut a deal with China, you might as well cut a deal now. It's probably not going to get better in six years. It's not like just one administration will change everything overnight. So... I think there may be some aspect of realpolitik involved. Like, let's just get a deal done, get the best deal done possible without compromising ourselves too badly. And if that hurts his ability to speak out on human rights, well, that may be a short-term hiccup that they have to deal with or live with. Yeah, and are there uh, still Catholic clergy in jail in China for their activities uh, with the underground church or anything else? And would any Beijing-Vatican agreements entail their release? You know, honestly, I don't know. Uh, I I don't think so. The most spectacular case um, that bordered on that was um, was there was a bishop appointed in Shanghai, Ma, um, and Ma Dechin, and he was appointed about two years ago. And at his uh, consecration ceremony in the, his, his, the big, big ceremony in, in the main um, church in cathedral in Shanghai, he... In Xu Jiahui. Yeah. yeah, I think it was Xu Jiahui. Um, there's a video of this. You can find it all over YouTube and so on. He makes a speech where he says... Um, you know, this is quite an honor. I'm now a bishop, blah, blah, blah. And in fact, I've got so much work as a bishop that I'm now no longer going to be f- doing my work for the Patriotic Association. And I'm putting all of those titles down and I'm just follow- following my, my wow. Catholic work. And that was basically a giant middle finger to Beijing, <laughs> yeah. basically saying, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> this uh, Catholic, uh, this this Patriotic Catholic Association stuff. And then he was put under quasi house arrest. Uh, held at a seminary um, outside of Shanghai for about a year. And he has slowly come back into public view, very quietly, hasn't made any spectacular speeches or sermons or anything like that. His fate would probably be, I'm sure, a source of the negotiations. What would happen to him? I mean, apparently, I guess he's apologized, but that would that's the best known case that I can think of right now. Ian, you know, you're someone who does a lot of research and writing about religion in China, which is one of the big sensitive topics. Um, do you get much pressure from the authorities? Do you worry about um, uh, getting into trouble in the course of your work? Um, I have not gotten pressure from authorities. I find, especially if you're talking about the sort of quote-unquote indigenous Chinese religions, people are always happy to talk about that. They think it's just, you know, Hongyang, Zhongguo, Wenhua, sort of promoting Chinese culture. Um, and the other religions, yeah, I mean, there are they are potentially sensitive, but um, I think it just depends how you go about doing it. I tend to try to talk to people over a prolonged period of time, um, and so I'm not usually not going in to do sort of a quick hit sort of story that might get people into trouble or or that sort of thing. So I find it works pretty well. Plus he works for the New York Times. I mean they're they're you know they never get in they never invite scrutiny from yeah right. <laughs> the bell is already on the time go wrong. So. <laughs> right? <laughs> so Ian, I've lost count now of the number of people who've pointed out certain resemblances between the Catholic Church and the Chinese Communist Party. 
Uh, Ian, what do you make of that comparison? Is there anything to it at all? And if so, what what do you think it might tell somebody about the CCP uh, who's already you know kind of familiar with the church? Well, well they both follow the mass line, right? Oh, <laughs> that's a bad one. Bad one. <laughs> oh, um, well, they are. They both follow the principles of democratic centralism, uh, <laughs> and uh, they have so the Catholic Church is a Leninist party. <laughs> leadership succession is in, in secret with a signal uh, set out, yeah, yes, right. from some party congress. Right. Um, well, actually, I would say up until recently, the over the past say decade or so, the Communist Party has been a bit more transparent about its succession process because <laughs> you knew Xi Jinping was going to take over uh, five years ahead of time. But um, I think. Both of them are big, sprawling organizations that seem more unified than they are. And so people will, you know, often say, oh, there's 85 million party members or 90 million or whatever it is now. And that's more than the population of such and such. Um, and they, they are. It is, of course, what it is organized, but it's not a monolith. And I think that's the same right. with the Catholic Church, um, that you have competing factions. And, you know, you have people, for example, in the bureaucracy and the state administration for religious affairs, SARA, SARA, who are extremely savvy, incredibly smart people who have PhDs in Catholic theology and Buddhist theology and so on and so forth, um, who really believe in the role of um, religion in society. And then you have other people who are avowed atheists who think that a communist party must be atheist and must promote atheism. So you have widely differing factions in these two parties. And I think it's just a question, cutting a deal, it's just a question of, of, of getting these interfaces to sort of interlock at the right so the right people are talking to the right people and that they can carry the other people with them. And that's the trick. The Communist Party must, of course, be atheist. I mean, it says so in this revealed text, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. And its um, its members are, of course, supposed to be atheists, and they, but they always tell them this. You know, every few, every year or two, there's some saying, you know, party members must be atheists, which sort of implies that there are party members who are yeah. not atheists um, or who are going right. to temples or participating in some sort of ceremonies. Um, but I think, you know, the, the former head of the, of Sarah, Ye Xiaowen, who was probably the most influential person who set religious policy over the past 30 years, he used to always say only a communist party can run religious affairs in China because we're neutral. We're like the referees at a football match. We're not on one side or the other. And so it's good that I'm an atheist. And so they kind of, you know, they're kind of joking <laughs> about it, but I think there's, they think there's probably something to that, that they can, it's one of the many things they think, you know, the, the Communist Party sees problems all around it. They see a fractured society. They see rich versus poor. They see economic growth slowing, economic reforms that need to be done and so on and so forth. And religion is another one of these issues that they feel they have to deal with to keep society, to keep it going. And so I th they view it pretty, it's a pretty important issue for them, I think. Uh, Ian, I have a sort of psychological question. You see the, uh, the, the poor uh, Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association Catholics who must practice their, um, their religion without a pope, 
which sounds absolutely absurd, of course, and which, as you mentioned, the Dalai Lama a second ago, the, the adherence to the Gulupa yellow hat sect of Tibetan Buddhists who also have to uh, uh, practice their, expunge the Dalai Lama from their worship because of the Communist Party's distrust of, of uh, spiritual leaders located far away. Uh, what is the psychological uh, state of, of of mind of these people worship? Are these are these are they sort of reciting one thing with their mouths while believing something else in their hearts, or uh, do some of the people who, for example, with uh, belong to the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association, really uh, believe that that this is a a valid form of their particular religion? Well, I think the just like with Tibetan Buddhism, the party probably does not. Well, the party does definitely in the, in the case of Catholicism does not care if you have a picture of the Pope um, at home or even in in the church. You'll see pictures of the Pope in official churches, and they'll say, "Yeah, he's a, a, a spiritual figure. He's very important, but he doesn't decide personnel issues in our country because it's an issue of sovereignty." Now, you'll have people in the Patriotic Association. At the top, who will say, "No, this is for the best. Um, it has to be like that." But you'll probably have most people who think, "You know, gee, it, w- it would be nice if it weren't like this, but we have to kind of live with it." You have a lot of people who go to the churches who say, "Well, we'd prefer, of course, if the Vatican could appoint people or if the Vatican had a stronger role, but it's just not realistic." And I still am a Catholic, and I still want to worship in a church, and so they go to the official church. You know, there's, there is fluidity also. It's not like the people who go to the official churches would never go to an underground church, and the underground people would never go to an official church. Sometimes it's a matter of convenience. If you're in a city, um, you don't know what the underground church is, so you go to the official church, you know, um, or you're, you're visiting friends or something or another. Um, you may go to one church or the other. So it's, it isn't a black and white issue. Hmm. Interesting. I suppose if you're willing to make the logical leap of faith uh, required to believe in God, making some adjustments for, uh, um, you know, the affairs of the world is, is not <laughs> such a problem. <laughs> Right here we were, you know, we'd we'd gone pretty 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 far into this without having to, you know, interject our own. Okay, well, you uh, can cut that out. Skepticism Kaiser. into it. I won't. No, I'll I'll leave it there to you know, so that people can attack you, Ian, Ian Johnson. It it's been great having you back on, uh, and thanks so much for making the time. Um, I look forward to having you back on with us once your book comes out, if not before, and I hope you'll stick around and make a couple of recommendations with us for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely, sure. Just despite right, so my terrible joke. <laughs> yeah, despite your terrible joke, right. So uh, be- before we actually get to recommendations, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. If you like the Cynical Podcast, by all means, please leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store or on Google Play or wherever you go to review apps. This really helps, and it does mean an awful lot to us. Onward to recommendation, and Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Um, I just got back, as uh, you mentioned earlier, from South Africa, where I attended uh, the Africa-China Journalists uh, uh, Forum, Um, and there were a bunch of really interesting African and Chinese journalists talking there. Uh, Two of them are Kevin Bloom and Richard Poplack. 
um, and they uh, worked on a book for a number of years uh, about Africa, and it initially was a, a kind of an Africa-China book, but it became a book about Africa itself. It's just that China has an outsized role in it. Um, so the product of maybe five years of research, it's called Continental Shift, A Journey into Africa's Changing Fortunes by Kevin Bloom and Richard Poplack. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm about three quarters of the way through. Uh, read it on the plane. Uh, really, really great book if you're interested in Africa or China's role in Africa. Terrific. That sounds great. We'll definitely check that one out. Ian, why don't you go next? Well, I'd recommend a book on Catholicism called The Missionary's Curse and Other Tales from a Catholic Village or a Catholic Chinese village. Um, it's by Henrietta Harrison, who is a historian at Oxford University. And she has used archives in China and at the Vatican to reconstruct this village in Shanxi province called Cave Gully. And it is just an amazing book. It's not a long book. It's about 250 pages maximum. It's a really nice read. It tells you all about how Catholicism um, survived during the rights controversy. And she does it through a series of, of, of little um, stories. They're almost myths from the village about... Um, and one of them is the missionary who was so angry at the village that he cursed the village when he left it. Um, and But she has stories of how Catholicism survived in the Cultural Revolution, and, and each chapter brings you up toward the present um, and tells gives you a, a view of how these people really, really at the grassroots level viewed their faith. And it's just, a, it's just wonderful. It's just a lot about basically village life in China as well. And um, I, I strongly recommend that. I, I, I teach that book at a course that I teach here in Beijing, and the students always love it. And I think it's one of the best little books on Catholicism in China that I can think of. Um, so I'd recommend that. What's this course you teach here in Beijing? I teach a course on contemporary religious practice at this place called the Beijing Center for Chinese Studies at uh, UIBE, uh, the University okay. of International, International Business, Business and, and Economics. Economics. Yeah, so it's an undergraduate. And, and do you teach it in, in English or in Chinese? No, I teach it in English. It's an undergraduate program okay. similar to David's uh, thing. So it's for undergrads, mostly from the U.S., who are coming over to China for a semester, ah, and they take courses. And this is a sociology course. Um, and um, yeah, so it's, 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 a, it's a great book. People always like it. It has lots of interesting, colorful stories about village life in China and how Catholicism survived there over the past uh, 400 years. This book makes a really profound point about China. And she, she says that people often think that things go from being foreign imports to becoming um, cynicized. And she says that actually foreign ideas go the opposite route in China and in many other cultures. So when Catholicism came into China, it seemed like a Chinese folk religion. You had the Virgin Mary, who was like a, a female deity like Guanyin in China. And you had ideas like the Ten Commandments, which seemed like typical Confucian rules for living a, a good life. A proper life. But actually, over time, it became more and more part of this global religion. As people, as globalization happened, even in the 19th century, people began to say, oh, this isn't just a local Chinese religion. This is something, this is part of something bigger. And so she thinks that if you think of global norms and stuff in China, that they do move toward international 
rules and regulations, but it just takes a longer time than people think. It, it doesn't happen overnight. And so she thinks of Catholicism in China going from this very local idea of a popular female deity and rules for good living toward being part of a real global religion, as similar to how other ideas have taken hold in China. Um, and so I, I think it's an interesting way of looking at it. And she makes this in a really, really smart conclusion uh, to her book, which makes the book really worth reading. I mean, I, I think that's certainly the case. I know that when Buddhism first arrived in China, it was seen as some sort of offshoot of Taoism, right? And uh, it, it became foreign. And by the time of, of you know, Han Yu in ninth century, it was decidedly foreign. Excellent, excellent. Thanks, Ian. David, what do you have for us? I want to recommend a site, a, a website called Hacking Chinese, and it's not a cybersecurity site. Uh, I get requests all the time, for, especially recently, for advice in learning Chinese, and so I'm always looking for bits of advice for such people besides give up before it's too late, <laughs> which is my usual advice. <laughs> but this is a great site by a young Swedish uh, Chinese language geek named Ule Linga, I can't really pronounce his first name too well, Ule, I think. Um, it has materials at all levels. It addresses the problems people have at all, all stages in the process of, of learning Chinese, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, or acceptance. <laughs> and, and, and if you're learning Chinese, this site will have something to help you, whether you're a beginner or advanced, or you want to, uh, you have a phobia about characters, or whether you could never get the tones right, or if you just need encouragement. There are links and articles at all levels that you can ch to choose from. And the best thing is the resources that he has, a, a section on that, with lots of digital tools and online resources that I'm a big evangelical advocate for, this being a religious program. Um, to, um, <laughs> and I, oh, yeah, I should thank Brian uh, Hewson, my, my friend from the New Zealand embassy, uh, embassy here, who has set us up for this podcast in honor of the subject matter with both water and wine. So we're, Ian and I are sitting here switching. We keep changing yeah, back and yeah, forth. Transform. <laughs> Transform, yeah. So that's my recommendation. Excellent, excellent. I'll have to check that out because I'm at a stage in my dealing with Chinese, I think it's not on your list, it's revenge. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, my, my recommendation, do you guys remember that Yule Brynner movie based on a Michael Crichton uh, novel from the 70s. I think it wasn't actually a novel. It was just he wrote the screenplay called Westworld. Ah, Remember yeah, robot, Yule Brynner ro as Robots, this? right? Yeah, yeah, exa exactly. Well, you know, HBO has actually remade, remade that into a series called Westworld, a very big twist on it. It's more the robots are, are, are protagonists in, in a very important sense, a, a couple of them especially. Uh, they're not robots. I mean, they're, they're very, very lifelike androids. And of course, this is a whole meditation on, on the nature of consciousness and um, and free will and all this. It's it's quite good. I'm I'm really enjoying it so far. It's six episodes in, and I'm looking for things to you know keep my mind off of the reality. <laughs> that we're, so I may be recommending a lot of escapist television and, and movies and, and a lot of science. Come fiction. back to the meritocracy, uh, Kaiser. <laughs> I might. I might. I might. Not not ruling that out. Not ruling that out. Anyway, uh, it's called Westworld. Uh, check it out. It's on HBO, and uh, you know, it's if you're if you're a, f I mean, it's J.J. Abrams is the executive producer. It's it's uh, you know, it's very adult, 
Not for the who, kids. Who did what? Who who's he? Neglected. He did what? What are you talking? What are you talking about? Who's he? J.J. Abrams, you know, Lost and and uh, all the, some of the movies in the Star Trek franchise, the latest oh, Star Wars movie. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, he's 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 a talent. He's a good guy. Um, Alias was another show that he did, which I thought was really quite good for a while. Anyway, anyway. Thanks again, Ian, for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, it's it was a real pleasure. Same here. It was a lot of fun as always. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng and Sarai Durabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Cynica at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Cynical Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Cynical Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.